I, I can kind of hear some some parents' thoughts right now. They're like, well, why get why isn't my doctor saying what you're saying? And the honest answer is they they probably don't know. If it's harming children and it's not necessary for children, I mean, I, I don't even know how we got here. From any point of view, if you look at emergency room visits, hospitalizations, uh, spontaneous abortions, birth defects, life-threatening illnesses, uh, resurgences of multiple sclerosis, demyelinating disorders, paralysis, uh, blindness, um, reemergence of latent viral infections. Anything you look at, every single one provides a really loud safety signal. Across every single system, that you can think of in the human body, neurological, cardiovascular, hepatological, uh, any system you can name, any, any pathology you can imagine, these things are causing it. So if it's happening in adults, it's safe to say, safe to assume that it's also going to happen in children. Now, they don't need these things and they might actually get damaged from them. And when you're talking about five to 11 year old people, their immune systems haven't finished forming. Their neurological systems haven't finished forming. Their cardiovascular systems haven't finished forming. They haven't hit puberty, okay? So it's really, 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 really potentially dangerous and harmful to put these products into kids because we don't have any safety data for them. Dr. Jessica Rose, thanks a million for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I saw your podcast with Gal. I can't think of his uh, second name, but I absolutely loved it. I recommend it to anybody that, um, and probably we will cover a lot of what was in that. But um, uh, I suppose we're going to get straight into it. Um, uh, the EMA. Um, in the last few days have given approval to vaccinate five to 11 year olds, which means given the green light in Ireland to vaccinate very young kids. Um, and that's really kind of what I want to begin with and talk about with you. Um, uh, the first thing I'd like you to do is maybe just give me your background, your credentials and tell me a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, I am... Uh, a scientist of all trades. I, I started in applied mathematics and moved on to immunology. And then I got a PhD in computational biology. And I have a couple postdocs in molecular biology and biochemistry. So pretty much anything to do with biology, I've dipped my toes into. Um, more recently, I've been uh, diving into VAERS data, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System data from the United States, which is a government database uh, collection of all the reports of adverse events in the context of all vaccines and these uh, COVID-19 injectable products. And what I found is uh, alarming, to say the least, and I've published three papers uh, since May uh, on subjects relating to what I found which we can talk about. And um, maybe the most important thing is that I love surfing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah. I will Ireland. ask you about that. <laughs> normally, when, 
when I do podcasts, I just chew the cud. But I, this is the most serious podcast, as far as I'm concerned, that I've ever done. And, I, 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 and I'm, anybody who's ever watched any of my stuff will know that I don't get straight in like this. But I, I feel like this is the way. I, I suppose what I, well, first of all, how did you, what drove you to go and look at VARs, at, at, uh, at the incidents? What, what made you go in if it wasn't something that you were doing three or four years ago? No, it was brand, well, the thing that was brand new to me was, um, well, first of all, the backstory is I finished my, my most latest postdoc, and because it was uh, many, many straight years of very hard work, uh, and I hadn't been on a trip for four years, I decided that I would take this grand trip uh, back to Australia, to Noosa, which is like one of the best longboard breaks in the world, and this was going to coincide with the Noosa Festival and also the uh, World Surf League uh, competition. So my plan was to go showcase myself because I'm, I'm kind of doing this professionally and also like maybe set up my life in Australia because uh, I was thinking of making the move. So that got canceled, you know, because uh, COVID. And um, so I needed a project. So I decided, well, why don't I just teach myself how to use R because uh, that could be fun. And so in order to do that, I, I wanted to make it practical. So I thought, well, if I have a database, if I have a data set, I can, you know, use that as a, as a practical guide to teach myself, you know, how to, uh, you know, make algorithms and stuff. So that's how it got started. Um, and I, I, I got pretty good at it, actually. I'm still, I'm still learning, of course. I'm not an expert, but... Uh, it has enabled me to um, to do some pretty interesting things and uh, and generate some analyses of this data that I really think the public needs to know. Um, so you mentioned uh, the children are going to start being injected in Ireland, and you also mentioned when we were talking before that zero children in Ireland have died from COVID. Is that correct? Yeah, that's something I've read recently. Yeah. So I, that's very uh, in line with what's happened in the rest of the world, um, because the infection fatality rate uh, in children, this is uh, in peer-reviewed literature. This is, this is not hearsay. This is a fact. It's almost zero, like really, really zero. COVID-19 doesn't affect children, and there are immunological reasons for that. It's not a, it's not a coincidence. It is lucky. Because imagine if this thing did affect our children, but it doesn't. And in effect, what that does is it allows us an opportunity to actually achieve herd immunity, or it, it provided us, we kind of ruined that with all these mass injections. Um, and they, they were actually providing and provide us, the adult population, a buffer zone. So it's a very, very, very bad idea to start injecting our young people for three reasons. One, it's useless because they don't need injections because they're very well protected by their own immune defenses. Their innate immune responses, don't even, they don't even get to the disease part. There's infection and there's disease. And if your in innate immune responses are so powerful, which they are in children, then you don't get to the disease part. You don't become symptomatic. So you're not able to pass it on to other people. So that's why it's useless. Second reason is it's harmful. 
The adverse event reports being reported to VAERS are over 1,500% increased when you compare the number of adverse event reports over the past 30 years, okay? The number of deaths is increased over 6,000% when you look at it in comparison with all the deaths combined per year, the average of those over the last 10 to 30 years. Now, if these products are negatively affecting adults across every single system that you can think of in the human body, neurological, cardiovascular, hepatological, uh, any system you can name, any, any pathology you can imagine, these things are causing it. So if it's happening in adults, it's safe to say, it's safe to assume that it's also going to happen in children. Now, they don't need these things and they might actually get damaged from them. And when you're talking about five to 11 year old people, their immune systems haven't finished forming. Their neurological systems haven't finished forming. Their cardiovascular systems haven't finished forming. They haven't hit puberty, okay? So it's really, 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 really potentially dangerous and harmful to put these products into kids because we don't have any safety data for them. This also is not hearsay. I can, I can talk about the lack of safety data in the adult population, it's lamentable, but <laughs> the lack of safety data in the childhood population, it, no one would believe it. I'll explain it. I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you all the numbers if you want yeah, to hear. Yeah, let's let's. Um, I think you, there was going to be a third, but yeah, yeah, dangerous at the population level. So I mentioned herd immunity. If we mass vaccinate, if we mass inject across all age groups, including non-vulnerable populations, including our children, with a non-sterilizing product, we are going to end up with a variant of concern. A variant of concern is a, a version of the virus that isn't just more transmissible, it's more virulent, it's more pathogenic, and it'll probably, or not probably, it will potentially end up being bad for kids and everyone else. A non-sterilizing product is one that doesn't provide protective immunity and doesn't prevent transmission, and that's what we have here. So there's three really good reasons so I might get that, yeah, so I might then try and break it down. Uh, um, so say I'm a parent, I have a six-year-old at home, and as far as the vaccines are concerned, um, I've got mine, um, everybody around me has got mine, and there might be, I might have heard a few things of hearsay, but, uh, you know, um, and, and I'm going to get my kid vaccinated, because, um, well, it'll keep granny and granddad safe. That's really, you know what, that's the first thing that we were, have been told. I mean, I am not making that up. That's been the kind of general oh, no. idea that, that you know, to protect rule. the vulnerable. That's so, but, the rhetoric, it's not true. So, so that's, that's the first thing. That, mm -hmm. Is that true? No. Does the vaccine protect? No. No, okay. your child, probably already has had COVID and you never would have known and they never would have known because they're asymptomatic. They don't get to the disease state. They, they, 
their immune systems handle the virus. The virus doesn't infect enough cells to cause you know, a, a disease state. And then they have lifelong protective immunity, okay? They're not a threat to grandma, not at all. And the thing is, mm, sorry, I, go I ahead. was going to say, so, so the first thing is that, um, it, well, in reality is that the vaccines do not help, the, do not stop the spread. Anyway, we know that that's clear as day and everybody can see that by the case numbers in Ireland. So that's the first thing. So it, the original purpose is of, is not true. It doesn't do that. The second thing is, can you, uh, you were kind of saying we don't have the safety data. Do we have, do we know like the reality is if a child is given a vaccine or if, the, if a child gets the virus, they're at zero, zero risk. Now, zero point whatever ever risk. It's, it's minute. Now, people would go, OK, but but it's you're talking minute. So if it's almost zero risk, how does that compare to taking the vaccine? Right. So um, the numbers are coming in on that and we can talk about it and I, I can't tell you exactly how many times more dangerous these products are going to be to children, but COVID is not dangerous to children. Here's a graph. This is a peer-reviewed study on age-specific mortality, blah, blah, blah. And there's, it's, it's like 0 0.001, like this is two zeros after the decimal point and then a one. I mean, come on. Yeah. Your yeah. child has far, is far more likely, God forbid, to drown or to get in a car accident or to slip and fall and hurt their head than they are to die from COVID. Statistically, it's not, it doesn't, it's not a thing. This whole um, framework of grandma needs to be protected. Uh, you know, it's, anyway, I won't go through it because I hate even thinking about it, but like, it's, it's all just rhetoric. It's not based on science. Kids aren't affected by this and we're very, very lucky for that. So um, one other thing I wanna show you, I just wanna share my screen uh, one more time because this, this is something that nobody's doing and I think it's really important uh, that people get some perspective because I think, Everyone has lost perspective, um, and this is morbid, but, um, and, and this isn't even up to date. So this is a chart that shows uh, the, the number, oops, where did I go? The, the number of deaths in children aged, I can't really see here because, oh, aged five through 14. Yeah. From 2019, okay? So, you know, it, it doesn't really change that much from, from year to year. And the claim was that COVID-19 took uh, 67 lives of children uh, ages five through 14 in 2020, which now has been, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's been proven to be false because the total number of kids in the US that were uh, from zero to 18, I think, that were, that were claimed to have died from COVID uh, in 2020 was 335. And Marty Macquarie's the guy in charge, he works at Johns Hopkins. And he said not one of those cases were, were like, they weren't checked 
to confirm that those children had died of COVID by anyone. And when they were checked finally, they found out that zero of them died of COVID. They died with COVID because they had pre-existing comorbidities. So the truth came out. So this is just a perspective chart. What people need to know, and I know I told you I can't tell you how many times more, how many more times dangerous these injections are, but this will give everyone an idea. So first of all, the time that I made this, uh, this count, this 13 children who died from the COVID-19 injections, ages five through 14, there weren't meant to be any children in that age group injected when I did this. So I won't talk, I won't deep dive into that now, but safe to say there are thousands of ch underage children being injected in the VAERS database right now. This is a government database. It's serious and it takes a half an hour to file a report. It's not a joke. So 13 does not include the underreporting factor. And it's a known uh, fact about VAERS that underreporting is an issue. It's somewhere between, um, I don't know, it, 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 there, there are many different opinions about this. I've actually made a calculation of what the underreporting factor is, and so has Steve Kirsch. And, and this is his number here of 41, which he made, uh, he calculated based on a peer-reviewed study of anaphylaxis using that as a proxy for death. So the point is, when you incorporate the multiplication factor, the underreporting factor, you get this, you know, 13 is a low estimate to 533 deaths from injections in this age group. And if you compare that with the numbers on the right, I mean, it's comparable to suicide, that's horrific, but uh, it's higher than heart disease. It's higher than, and, and the, there are gonna be combination effects here. Like there are gonna be kids with comorbidities who are gonna be dying from the injections. And my point is there have been no freaking studies done to confirm or deny who these products should be given to. Who are the vulnerable populations? We can answer that one real quick. Children aren't vulnerable. And the thing is, if your child does have a comorbidity, they shouldn't be injected with an experimental product anyway, because you should assume that there might be a complication. You should assume that. And maybe now, what I, if we're just taking the five to 11 year olds in Ireland, right? And mm -hmm. I, I'm going to, I'm repeating myself because I just kind of want it very clear that if anybody's going to go ahead and do with this, at least they're aware of risks, okay? Now, um, we know that it doesn't help the spread and we know um, that children are not at risk with COVID. So there's the first two points. Um, but I'd like you to talk about the, your peer review approved data to show where well, you can say, for example, taking myocarditis is one very clear example. You can say somebody um, who has got vaccinated versus not vaccinated. So the, the, uh, the paper that I co-authored co with Peter McCullough um, showed that there was a 19 times above background reporting rate of myocarditis in VAERS in children aged 12 through 15. Uh, and it also showed, as you can see in this, um, this figure that I have up, that it's not exclusive to children, the myocarditis reporting. So 
the, the some people claim that the myocarditis rates in COVID are way worse than the myocarditis rates in uh, associated with the injections, and that's false. So something I'm doing right now, it's it's the follow-up paper with Peter, is that I'm looking at um, the difference between uh, COVID-induced myocarditis and injection-induced myocarditis, because there are clinical markers that can distinguish between the two. Um, but let me let me just talk about this uh, this slide right here because we we're talking about kids now, right? And mm. and the dangers. And this is something that even the CDC and the FDA have acknowledged, which is remarkable that they did that. But um, so this is a plot that shows all the myocarditis uh, reports in VARES across all ages. So, and this is according to dose. So what you notice here are two, two main things. One, it's that the uh, the fifteen year old boys are reporting adverse are reporting myocarditis, and this is a diagnosis of myocarditis by a doctor uh, at a rate that's about five times higher following the second dose. And what this means is that it's dose related. This is a this this implies causation right here, like completely. So the other thing you notice is that the the data primarily for, um, in the case of dose two, is shifted to the left, which is the younger ages. So when, when, you, when you think about boys aged 15, you think puberty, right? So there might be some kind of connection or, or the imposition of these, these products, whatever is causing this, the spike protein or whatnot, might be happening because of androgens. I have no idea. This is something that's probably being investigated right now on the bench. But again, <laughs> these are things that should have been done before. And if you do have a child and you're considering injecting them with these products, don't do it, especially if they're a young boy, because this is a very real potential risk. And everybody needs to do a risk-benefit analysis right now. There's no harm, there's no reason to inject your child. Your child's fine. They've probably already got COVID. They probably already have protective immunity. And these products might actually hurt them. I'm not saying they will, I'm saying they might. So you don't want to take that risk. Um, the other thing you're hearing a lot of people say on the subject of uh, myocarditis is that it's mild and transient. Both of those things are absolutely categorically wrong. Okay, Peter, Peter McCullough is like probably one of the best cardiologists in the world. He is a wildly amazing human being. And he knows the most about this of anybody. And he, this is his claim as well. They're not mild and they're not transient. So this follow-up paper that I'm working on actually shows that 73% of all the reports made for children ages 12 through 17 are associated with hospitalization. Does that sound mild to you? Doesn't sound mild to me. And they're also uh, um, associated with elevated troponins, which is a definitive marker for injection-induced myocarditis. And we're not talking about mild elevations. Peter says they're like 50 times normal. And we're, we're seeing a lot of other things as well. So they're, they're absolutely not mild, 
And anyone who claims that they're transient because, well, we gave them some medication and we sent them home and they're fine. If you sustain damage to your myocardium or any part of your heart, it will manifest later on. There's actually a timeline that you basically get put on and you'll, you'll pretty much follow that timeline to an early death. So I'm not a cardiologist. I'm just, uh, I'm relaying what I know that cardiologists are saying. And, uh, and if I'm scaring you, then good. Then I've done my job because you should be scared uh, of the potential risks of these products. And there's no reason to put them in your children. <laughs> I can't say that enough. Well, I, I think you, I have no problem with you saying it as many times because really that is the essence of what we're, I feel, I mean, okay, some people are curious and they'll go looking, but the vast majority of people, let's just say, are trusting and they have not, they have not been informed of the risks. And because then at least if you're going in and you're getting it done, you re you're, you're aware of the risks. And that is the fundamental thing that we're, um, that, you know, that I want to get to here is that, okay, if you're going to make the decision, make the decision, but make the decision knowing clearly knowing. that there are risks and there are yeah. risks. And, um, and by the way, I, I can kind of hear some, some parents' thoughts right now. They're like, well, why, get, why isn't my doctor saying what you're saying? And the honest answer is they, they probably don't know. Like, that's my best answer. They, they don't, like, there are some places in the world that, that I am aware of where the top, top people have no idea that fares even exists. They don't have their own adverse event data collection system, which is horrific when you're considering that, you know, a majority of the population of entire countries have been injected multiple times with these products. It's insane that there's no data being collected on adverse events, considering what we're seeing in UDRA, in the yellow card system in, this, in the UK, in SA VARES in South Africa, in America, the VARES system in Australia, every, every country that has a collection system, and, and some of them had to develop their own because they didn't exist, is showing the same thing. The safety signals associated with these products for, just about everyone. It's across all age groups. This is what the first two papers I published showed. Except for death, there's no real group that's particularly more associated with an adverse event, except for myocarditis in children. This is happening across all age groups. Nobody's immune. Um, and like I said, the number of actual adverse event types being reported to VAERS specifically is over 10,000. We've never seen anything like this before. Okay, so I, I'm going to get into that with you, but I want to just talk really quickly, or not really quickly, but just about the paper that was... Um, uh, talk to me just a little bit. You've, you've got this peer-reviewed paper. Peer-reviewed is not um, something that is very easy, let's just say, to get and complete and get it published. Is that, you know, to get something done, can you just talk about in order to get something peer reviewed and approved, what does that mean to the lay people in the world? It's a very uh, difficult process. And uh, peer review means that your work is sent to somebody with expertise in the area 
more, more than one, and they hack it to pieces. Sometimes they're jealous and they really do hack it to pieces. And then they send it back and, and they say, uh, yes, it's very nice, but you have to do all of this in order, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you have to send it back. And then they have to do it again. And it's this annoying back and forth process that every single person who submits papers to, to journals hates, including me. So when you succeed in this and you, you finally get your paper approved for publication, it's very exciting. And so uh, you get your approval. You have the pre, some journals will, will publish the pre-proof version, which is what happened with mine. It get, goes up on PubMed, which basically immortalizes it. And then you, 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 know, you pay your fees, you sign your contract, you wait for the galley proofs to come in to, for the final you know, copy. And it, it's, it's a serious thing and you pay a lot of money to do this, which we did. And then, um, and then a typically <laughs> uh, a publisher will send you uh, or, or just write temporarily removed beside the title of your paper without informing you that they were going to do so. So this, this doesn't happen, okay? This happens in COVID times often, but this doesn't happen typically, it doesn't. And without, it doesn't without any explanation from no, the publisher. No, no notification and no explanation. I wrote two emails to the editor-in-chief and to the publisher to, to, for an explanation in a non-aggressive way because I honestly didn't know what was going on. And I gave, you know, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. Because, um, you know, most people are just, you know, working hard and da da da, da. So um, I didn't hear from them right away. And of course, Peter and I were going back and forth. And because and, I asked him, like, do you know what happened here? And he's like, no, a journalist informed me of this this morning. And I'm like, yeah, I got two emails in my inbox from, from fans saying my paper was removed. And I'm like, what? So, um, yeah, they finally got back to us and they said, that because it hadn't been an invited paper, uh, that they were considering not publishing it, which is BS. And, and Peter, you know, he wrote them back and he said, no, 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 that's not how it goes. Here are some examples of you uh, publishing non-invited papers. So if you don't reinstate our paper, we're gonna litigate. We didn't hear from them for about a week. And then we got an email and it said, we're not publishing your paper because we don't have to. So they, they, they cited that that's actually the reason they gave. They said at any point during the publication process, we can decide not to. And so we're deciding not to, no reason. No problem with the content, no arguments from like a hundred cardiologists who wrote to them saying this paper is shit, you shouldn't publish it, nothing. So yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty uh, surprised. <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, it's insane. That is insane, but it is like insane. The, uh, you have said it already, but I'd like you to just say it again. In, and this is just myocarditis. It, what was the main finding in terms of figures? Um, 19 times above background reporting rate for the 12 to 15 year olds. 19. So 19 times 19 background, times. yeah. yeah. So typically in the US, one in 100,000 children in that age group will get myocarditis. So that's the background rate. So it's 19 times above that. In the, in, and that's just the reports that were um, filed. And also, you know, the, the, it's, it's not just about the kids. We, we found a, a distribution 
of reports across all age groups. So it's not limited to children. So, no. yeah, so we, we but, but I think the, the kids, um, the point on the kids is, is one of the most um, striking uh, findings from this paper. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it, and, it, I, I suppose it is, yeah. As a, as a parent and for anyone out there, I just think they have not been informed. Yeah, like well, you know, ca a caveat on mTOR, <laughs> you know, let the buyer beware that there are risks to your children and it will do no good in terms of the spread. So, no doctor really would recommend it for a teenager uh, if they knew this. If I, they knew, and, if they and knew that's, this. Exactly, that's exactly the point I was going to make now. So, it's very atypical for a, a paper that's gone through to publication and been immortalized in PubMed to get censored. It's very weird. It doesn't happen. It's happening now. Because I, I would assume, you know, some, some overlord or whatever doesn't want the public, the cardiologists, the pediatricians, the parents, the kids to read the paper. That would be my assumption. That's the reason to censor something. And so it did get censored. And now I mean, it had a huge following on social media, even before it was formally published, like huge, like tens of thousands of people. It was all over the world. People really wanted to read this paper and it got destroyed. And that was five days before I was scheduled to speak to the FDA for the verb pack meeting, which was going to address a panel of judges on the subject of injecting five to 11 year old children. Five days before they pulled my paper. So it's like, <sighs> I don't know what to say. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not insisting that anybody believes what I'm saying. I'm just telling you the story of what's happening to me. And I'm, I'm just a boring, nerdy scientist. I'm, I'm not a superhero. I'm not, you know, anti-vaccine. I'm, I'm not any of those things. I'm just a person who went into a data set found something, published it, or at least tried, and, and then tried to get uh, the people who might want to read it to read it by, by, by writing a paper about it. And so, yeah, these things happened. And it's, it's not a coincidence <laughs> at all. But uh, despite all the censorship and, and, well, no, it's not despite that, because that's the whole point. People who need to know that there are dangers associated with these products, they, they, they just need to know. And the, the parents need to know that all the stuff that the media, the legacy media is spouting about them, you know, being in danger is bullshit, 100%. Your children, if they haven't already had COVID, which I guarantee you they have, and they have protective antibodies to prove it, you can go get them checked if you want. When they do get it, because they will, they won't have a hard time of it. And if they have a comorbidity and they do have a hard time of it, early treatment. We have so many known early treatment drugs, off-label drugs that are effective and safe. I mean, decades long track records of FDA approved drugs. You can even put them in pregnant women. They're completely, completely safe. And luckily they have, uh, they're very effective. They've been shown this in like 65 clinical trials around the world to be effective. I can show you uh, a couple of slides if you want. Um, 
But yeah, if it comes to that, God forbid, we have solutions. Yeah. And they're not and it's, and, it's not and it's not just myocarditis, but the one the report well, God, that you no, done, there's yeah. tens of thousands of things. Like like I said in the beginning, we're talking about something that systemically destroys when it does. This is affecting like every system you can name. And I think the reason for that is because these products are, they're, they're not vaccines, first of all. They're, they're a completely different technology. They, they're mRNA, which is messenger RNA, which is the coding template for protein. And the protein that they're encoding is the spike protein of the coronavirus wrapped in a lipid nanoparticle bubble, which is a fat bubble. And th this, this bubble with the mRNA is injected intramuscularly, and then it gets widely biodistributed, which they either knew and didn't care about, or they didn't know, and then we found out after. And we found out after, because a Canadian viral immunologist named Byron Bridal foiled a Japanese study that showed that the lipid nanoparticles were heavily biodistributed and collecting in the ovaries and the adrenals and the brain. That's not supposed to happen. We don't know the effects of, of what that's going to be. We don't know if those are the very places where that payload, the mRNA payload is going to get dumped and then converted by our own host cell machinery into the spike protein. That's what it's designed to do. So we should assume that that's what's happening. And then anyone who's kind of logical would think, well, since we don't really know what the effect of that would be, since we're seeing all these horrible things happening to women's menstrual cycles, maybe there's a connection there. So the point is, I'm not saying that anything is cause this is causing this, but I'm saying these things are happening in females. And this is what we didn't know about this, this product beforehand that we know now, and they might be connected. So um, in, a, in a rational world, this is, I mean, the, the sound, the alarm time it was six months ago, but this oh, is sound a long time, a long yeah. time ago, but, it's, but it is sound the alarm. Yes, on, on any, in any way you look at this, if you want to look at deaths, the last time people died, from, from a vaccine that was rolled out into the human population was with this flu vaccine and they injected hundreds of millions of people and 50 people died, 53. And so that was the cutoff. They were like, holy crap, that's too many people. So they, they like X'd that and they, they took it out of the, they took it off the market. That's, that's kind of, you know, normal when people start dying from a product that's supposed to be promoting health and longevity, you, you probably should take it off the market, right? If it's harming children and it's not necessary for children, I mean, I, I don't even know how we got here. From any point of view, if you look at emergency room visits, hospitalizations, uh, spontaneous abortions, birth defects, life-threatening illnesses, uh, resurgences of multiple sclerosis, demyelinating disorders, paralysis, uh, blindness, um, re-emergence of latent viral infections, Anything you look at, every single one provides a really loud safety signal. And so the the argument um, that, uh, and I suppose just percentage-wise, I'd like to understand uh, the argument that uh, uh, this is the most amount of vaccines ever given out in the world in any in a short space of time, and that's why there's so many. What's the 
percentage? You, you mentioned 50 at flu and the whole thing was stopped. Is there a comparative percentage figure in terms of incidents? No, no, it's a number of people. So yes, like, no, I get that. Yeah, 50. Right. So people think that there are so many more uh, COVID-19 products being put into humans than any other, but that's not true. The flu uh, products are given out in hundreds of millions, copious amounts every year. So it's not about that. It's, it's not about the fact that, okay, well, okay, I get your question, but. Just the, the comparative, like if it's. It shouldn't 10, be different. 10,000 deaths over a billion or, or 10, whatever the population is, or 50 over, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of that. Totally, totally. But, but I mean, uh, it, it's, it's a great point, but it's moot because they don't care. There is no cutoff for these products. There's over 10,000 deaths reported in VAERS, and that's not including the underreporting factor. If you go with the lowest calculation of the underreporting factor, which I did using Pfizer's own clinical trial data of 31, you know, that's okay, so, a lot of dead people associated. Yeah, so, so, so you, um, I, I want to, that explained. Um, a little bit better, if you don't mind. So in your studies of VARS, there's 10,000, let's say, uh, approved is a terrible word, but, but 10,000 records that remain in VARS yeah. of deaths due to COVID-19 vaccinations, 10,000. In the domestic data set, yes. Okay, and so when you're describing that 31, it's underreported by a factor of 31, which would mean 300,000 deaths and you're using the Pfizer, break that sentence down a little bit better for me, if you know what I mean, just to understand what, how were you able to use that? Okay, so what I did, and you can, uh, you can criticize me, I, I never mind being wrong. That's part of being a real scientist. Um, so well, what I did- It actually is, sorry, just that's, that's, that's the difference in this sort of conversation. Yeah, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no wrong path in the other path. It's yeah. this this way or no way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm not like that. So um, so the Pfizer phase three clinical data, they had like 18,000 people in each arm, the placebo arm and the drug arm, okay? Something like that, a little more than 18,000 in each arm. So they have a table, it's table four in, in you know, this layout of their... Uh, their assessment, they, they, they provided a report to the FDA. So um, in their report, they report a certain percentage of people in each arm that succumb to a severe adverse event. Now, a severe adverse event by VAERS definition is death, uh, a birth defect, a life-threatening illness, a visit to the ER, hospitalization, or disability, something, something that disables you if you end up in a wheelchair, for example have many examples of that too. Maddie de Garay being the most prominent. If you don't know who she is, go find out who she is. She'll change your life. Maddie de Garay, G-A-R-A-Y. Um, so there were 0.7% of the people in the drug arm for Pfizer that succumbed to a severe adverse event. So I took that rate and I multiplied it by the number of people who'd been injected. I think it was by August 10th. This is published in my second paper on pharmacovigilanceness of VAERS. And then I took that number, which is the expected number of people that would have succumbed to a severe adverse event. And I divided it by the total number of severe adverse event reports in VAERS at that date, on that date. 
and I got 31, which is the multiplication factor or the underreporting factor. So it's possible and probable actually that, no, I'm gonna change my wording. The underreporting factor for each adverse event, standalone adverse event, is it's probably going to vary. Okay, so the underreporting factor for death is going to be uh, like a lot lower than, say, for a, I don't know, a cough, because a lot fewer people are going to report a cough than death. You'd assume, right? Mm -hmm. So this thirty-one may apply to death, or it might be a little bit lower than that, but it doesn't matter to me. I don't even consider the underreporting factor when I do my analyses because you don't need to because the numbers are already exorbitantly high when you compare them to the past. And that in itself is a safety signal. If you have a baseline without underreporting factor, 1500% uh, increase in reporting, I mean, hello, where, where, where are the weekly safety reports? Where are the monthly safety reports? Where, where is any acknowledgement of this? I mean, it's just crazy. And by the way, if you don't believe me, one of the reasons I chose VARES as a data set to teach myself how to use R is because it's really easy to download from their website. So you can go do that. You can check for yourself, just download. There are three files in the domestic data. There's data, symptom, and, um, and uh, VAX. So the VAX has all the vaccine information. The symptom has a list of up to 15 different adverse event reports made for one person, each person. Most of them have five. And the first one is actually like the diagnosis. And there's also um, a data file which contains their VARES ID, their age, their state, and all of this other stuff. So you can just, you don't even have to merge the files. You can just count, you know, you put, open it up in Excel and count how many adverse events for whatever you have and verify what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And then go, go download the previous years, and do the same thing and compare them and then start asking questions. And so, so then the, uh, there's at this moment in time in that database, there's 10,000 approximately reported deaths and then, and, but overall incidents is so of reaction. In the domestic data set, there are 654. Oh, by the way, VAERS didn't get updated this week because of Thanksgiving. So there are 654,539. Uh, total adverse event reports, like as per ID number in the domestic data, not the foreign data. And there are 9,931 deaths. There are 41,370 hospitalizations, 81,831 ER visits. Total number of uh, severe adverse event counts uh, reported is 116,275. Multiply that by whatever you want. Um, COVID breakthrough infections, 27,688. Female reproductive issues, and this is based on a small keyword search that I've done. There's, a, there's almost 12,000 um, reports for children, age zero through 18, almost 30,000. Uh, it, it's, it's crazy, it's, it shouldn't be. So um, by the way, I, I mentioned, the, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you, yeah, yeah, how much time have you left? Is that what you were going to say? I have about 11 minutes. And 11 then I minutes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. I, I, I do understand 
just as abided by the underreporting. Now I understand um, your maths, I, and but I, I can understand totally why it's it's as reasonable as any. You know, it's it's given the nature of the time it takes to update a system, given the hassle that's involved, and given the, all of those things, it could be more than that. But even like sticking to the people do not know about the 650,000 adverse reactions. They absolutely no. don't know about 10,000 deaths. And we we don't know how much we don't know, really. I mean, we can surmise, we can make jumps here, but because there isn't conversations like this on a everywhere basis, really, this conversation should be happening all the time everywhere all the time and and the scientists that are being silenced and the gps who are uh by the way this is another thing you need to think about i know gps and there are lots of reports of this and and nurse practitioners who have injection associated injuries that they're treating and they know that they're caused by the injections because those are their patients and the temporal proximity is too short for it not to be causative. Now, you know, these, these, these uh, that's my opinion. I, I absolutely 100% am behind causation, but this is my point. If a doctor or nurse practitioner suspects that there's some kind of connection between the injection and their adverse reaction, whatever it may be, then they have to report it to VAERS. They have to, it's like a law. And the fact is that I've heard from people that I know on the ground that they have too many people to ever be able to possibly imagine putting them all into the system because it takes about 30 to 35 minutes to make one VARES report. It's a multi-page system. It's very intensive. It's very annoying. If you don't finish each page in, in the uh, set time, they boot you off and you gotta start again. So imagine you have, you know, even 10, let's go small, 10 patients that you have come in in a 12 hour time frame as an ER doctor that you suspect, you know, they got their shot and, and half an hour later, they have a heart attack. So they might not be, have any time. They're saying they don't have the physical time after a 12 to 14 hour shift to file these reports. So this is another reason why underreporting is a big thing. It's like the thing, the reports that actually get filed, it's a really small percentage. So yeah, people need to know that. And, and I think that's, if you were to look at this, like simplicity is simple, isn't it really? Like if people knew the level of risk, they can just go, okay, well, I didn't really know. Nobody told me that. What they were told, and most people were told was, well, I'm doing this for to protect, not necessarily for myself, but you're going to protect other people. Now, that is categorically anybody. You don't need a scientific background. You don't need anything to see that looking at the case numbers, that is not true. So that you don't need anybody to tell you that that's not true. But that was one of the reasons why everybody got it. I'm correcting that. That's one of the reasons why. A lot of people went, OK, I'm not necessarily doing it for myself. I know I'm healthy, but I want to make sure that I don't give it to my uh, grandparents or whoever that are the vulnerable because I'm a good person because that's what really the whole. And there was, you know, that's for a lot of people. That's what they felt like. That's the first. The second is the risk 
factor. They just simply did not know that they might be at risk. Now, as the song goes, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. Uh, you know, and it, now we're here. It's the alarm bell time. It's already passed. You've taken the risk yourself, but now you need to know the data is there. It's clear. Well, it's clear here with us two. I mean, I need to be wearing a, a, a suit and I have CNN behind me for this to be believable. But, you know, yeah. I, I mean, isn't that the truth and, and, uh, for, for, for me to be believable? And for, but you have credentials. So you can either now, knowing all the risks, choose to ignore that or whatever. Um, right. I, I, I know we don't have too much time left. Um, I'd like to get the PDF of that paper. I know it's on your website, but it's kind of harder to find on the... I know you're saying you're not a website designer, but I can get that off you again. Or I'll send you an email reminder. The the on the myocarditis. Yes, yeah. I went on. I, I just like to be able to put this simple. I know I have your website. Okay, great. You have it there for me. Um, I was just going to ask you about Israel. Um, in terms of it being put uh, up on a height as being the best in the world in terms of people double vaccinated and booster and everybody's saying well the booster has solved all the problems and that's what you get here let's look at Israel is amazing and it's everything is wonderful over there and the cases are gone and they've eradicated <laughs> COVID and everything I'm telling you that is the view that you're okay. I, 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 that is a given. I want to show everyone a little graph who believes that it's it's from something I wrote today um, yeah, so for everyone to know, uh, they're triply injected now um, here, and they're waiting for their fourth. And that indicates to me that, A, they don't know what a vaccine is, and that's probably not their fault. I'm not judging. B, they don't know what a booster is, again, not their fault, uh, because Vaccines don't work like that. If you're getting repeated injections of a material, that's a treatment. That's not a vaccine. You have to go out and learn what a vaccine is. And if we had more time, I would explain this um, next time. It gives yeah. us something to talk about. But, but look at this. This is us now. So compared to South Africa, where this the Omicron variant is coming from. <laughs> <laughs> so the this super is the califragilistics uh, mutant virus. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, so this is the daily new confirmed COVID-19 cases per million people. And I, I use the word case with a grain of salt here. Uh, this is from today, from our world in data. So uh, Israel is, 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 you know, like, I don't think you need to have any math skills to see what's going on here. The, the, the case number in compare, this is only in comparison with South Africa now, but mm -hmm. it's, it's really high. Um, and another paper came out recently that actually shows that if you've had uh, multiple injections, then you're more likely to get COVID. And that's reflected in the VAERS data as well, because I've been tracking the number of breakthrough infections, which basically means the, the, it's a vaccine failure. That's what that equates to by definition. Um, the number of breakthrough cases is, is it's off the charts. What it means, uh, I have like three minutes. What it means is that you put your faith in the system. You believe that this is a vaccine and whatever you've ever heard about vaccines equals safe. So you go out, you get your injection to protect grandma. You end up getting COVID anyway. 
and then you end up dying, your VARES report gets filed and then it gets removed. That's a scenario that happens too often and I've actually showed that this is happening, but I, I just wanna drive home the irony here and go back to the kids because you might actually increase their risk of getting COVID and getting damaged by COVID because this is a whole other episode, but there's, there are indications in peer-reviewed literature now that these products are causing serious dysregulation to the immune system, effectively causing immune suppression. And if you're immunosuppressed, or if your immune system is dysregulated, then you're gonna have a, a worse fighting chance against any pathogen, including COVID. Don't do it, that's my advice. If I'm gonna give one piece of advice, I would say, don't do it. There's no need. I promise you, your kids are gonna be fine. The kids are all right. And I, yeah, that's I was actually going to ask you because I know you have to go. For, for me, if, if I was you know given a wish, I'd just say, look, stop. Let's just pause everything. Exactly. People, let's just put a pause on everything because what we're doing is not working. And then let's look and talk and talk to way more people. For you, it, what would be, is it, what is your one wish then on this whole mess? Do you have one? It's don't do it. I, I mean, that would be mine as well. No. Stop, stop. Um to dissolve any idea, memory, record of this retarded green pass crap ever coming into existence, that's what I would wish for because that's the thing that scares the hell out of me. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I know I should probably say, you know, stop putting it into people, but I mean, yeah, I think there are way scarier things than COVID, let me tell you. <sighs> Losing my freedoms is, is one of them. That's my wish. Yeah. Thank you so much, genuinely. Um, I, I really would like to chat again. Um, so let's see what yeah, happens. Yeah, we have to, because I have so much more to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I'm going to get it out as soon as possible. Um, I might uh, cut out that little, trying to figure out the 31 a little bit. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Whatever it get, get it tighter. But otherwise, thank you so much, Jessica, and keep fighting the fight. You're amazing. I mean that. Oh, thank you, Frank. And, and thanks for having me. And anytime, just like say, hey, are you free here? And I'll probably say yes if I'm free. Or okay. I will say yes, yes, but I might not be free. But you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I totally know what you mean. You're a star bar. <laughs> thank you so much. And good luck with wherever you're going, that debate thingy. All right. It's Steve Kirsch. We've